Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper, where myself, Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom discuss women in fantasy, science fiction and horror. Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle, beyond the goblin city, to take back the child that you have stolen. For my will is as strong as yours, and my kingdom is as great. You have no power over me. In the wake of David Bowie's sad passing earlier this year, many of us have been remembering him in our own way. Here at Breaking the Glass Slipper, we've wanted to pay tribute to the great man by discussing Labyrinth, a film highly influential on all of us. Not only for the great female protagonist, but also David Bowie's mesmerising performance. To kick things off, I wanted to ask what you think makes Sarah such a special character. Well, I think, Megan, that one of the things I really liked about Sarah, which is a bit random, was that she was so unlikable at the beginning. She was really, really petty, um, but she also had a lot of stuff that we could relate to. So she wanted to be a princess and was running around in um, sort of dresses and things like that, which was fantastic. Uh, oh, I would have to add that one of the things I did like about her was the fact that she didn't have massive, massive 80s hair like they all seemed to do in the, the movies at that time. It was nice and straight and she just looked like a normal girl uh, with normal sort of problems and issues and things like that. And I think they really managed to capture her as a as a character. And I, I think I was reading somewhere that uh, it was on the Mental Floss 16 Dizzying Facts that the other people who had applied to do it were Helena Bonham Carter uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and Laura Dern were among some of the others. And I just don't think any of them could have quite captured the, the way they did Jennifer Connelly, who I think because it was her first role, where obviously um, I think Sarah Jessica Parker had been in stuff previously and, and certainly Helena Bonham Carter must have been in Lady Jane by that point. Uh, I think that Jennifer Connelly brought a real kind of fresh innocence to it that we could all relate to that you maybe wouldn't have got if it was someone a little bit older. Uh, or, as I think, it was Lucy who forwarded the uh, Anne Perry article from Hodescape, who, Anne Perry saying that they'd got the age just right for yes. Sarah. And, you know, if she'd been too young, then she would have been a bit scared and she wouldn't quite have had that sexual awakening. And if she'd been too old, then she would have already gone through it all. And you wouldn't really relate to her because you kind of see her as going backwards. But because she's just on the cusp, as Anne puts it, she just it just makes her the perfect character to follow through this story and through this journey. Uh, I've got a great quote, actually, from that um, article, uh, just saying that. It says, uh, Anne says, If Sarah were older than she is in the film, she wouldn't be clinging to her childhood with the same ferocity, and it wouldn't work if she were younger, either. A child wouldn't feel the same conflict between freedom and responsibility, nor, indeed, would a younger child find Bowie's Jareth a temptation in and of himself, as Sarah does. Which I think really hits the, the nail on the head there. Yeah. Well, the other, the other thing that um, Anne said, which I thought was quite interesting, I'm afraid I've, I've not been as uh, as academic as you written down the quote, but it was it was something about um, Jareth trying to tempt her with all of her childhood loves and throwing distractions in her way, like the pretty dress and all the bubbles and things like that. So he tries to tempt her away from going into adulthood by removing her little brother, who sort of signifies her responsibilities, and tempting her with lots of little trifles, but in a weird contradictory way, he's also trying to tempt her to become an adult, a sort of a princess at the same time, because obviously there's the the underlying sexual chemistry between them. Uh, So I think it's a very, very convoluted and complex film that works on on very many levels. Yeah, in terms of her age, I I found it interesting because then you have that sort of classic teenage piece of, it's not fair, and she says that over and over again, you know, at every 
hurdle she faces it's not fair it's not fair and then you know you you gradually get that realization well life isn't fair and you've just got to you know take charge and and deal with it and I think you know again it's that perfect age where the audience can accept her for still having that you know it's not fair whining thing going on and then really sort of understand that growth and the change that her character has over the course of the film well I remember when I first watched Megan that when she kept going around saying it's not fair I used to actually cringe I mean I couldn't have been more than sort of maybe 12 or 14 myself and I was sitting there going no don't say that that's that's not the way to approach this so I think in a weird way you kind of you look at Sarah and you see her flaws and you appreciate even if you're not there yourself you appreciate that what she's doing is acting in a childish manner Um, and it was again it was sort of this she was really unlikable and petulant, but you kind of understood where she was coming from at the same time. And then it was, you know, really nice to watch her grow in a way that you hoped you'd grow when you grew up saying it's unfair yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I actually quite like about her character is that while she is, you know, as you say, quite petulant and she's sort of just going, oh, it's unfair, it's unfair. But she's also not afraid to ask for help. And I find that it tends to happen a lot where you have female characters and and someone's really trying to say, hey, this is a strong female character and you have her determined to always do things on her own. And what I really like about The Labyrinth is you have Sarah, who is a strong character. She is taking steps, you know, she has agency, she's making choices herself, but she's also not afraid to ask for help. And she, you know basically claims friends and it's not in any kind of way that she needs them to save her like some stories would would use those friends but yeah I I just I really like that I think for me the appeal was always that and again this is something I'm sort of bringing through my own writing now that I'm older is that I don't really like these chosen one stories or rather I do things like I grew up with Star Wars and the idea of you know the force and being the chosen Jedi and all this kind of stuff was was really fantastic but I think the wonderful thing about Labyrinth is that she has no magical powers. She is just an ordinary girl using her wits and her courage and, like you say, um, asking for help when she needs it. And her getting lipstick. through. <laughs> Good point, yes. And her, but, all, but again, something that um, lipstick very much is, you know, a feminine tool and um, thinking about how lipstick is used in other films, you know, maybe Sharon Stone's Basic Instinct and things like that. It's all very different. And here it's like, okay, it is something of femininity but it's also very practical because she uses it to to draw on the on the floor but I mean she's again she's not using a magic marker she's just using a lipstick she's using her brains and she's getting through it all and she wins even against magic she manages to be the normal average girl who wins and she doesn't have special chosen power she doesn't turn out to be a long-lost princess she's just her and she triumphs and I think that's fantastic and a brilliant message for teenagers I um I think uh, what's I've always loved about Sarah is the, the very first time I watched Labyrinth, I and I saw her dressed up in that wonderful kind of pre-Raphaelite costume and that flowers in her hair and with this book and she's kind of reciting it in, in the, the wind and the, the rain as it starts falling. Um, I really felt like she was me and I was her because I was exactly that kind of geeky teenager who spent most of the 
most of the time in my own head or wrapped up with a book and I think my my mother even though it wasn't a stepmother my own mother said several times I think you should have a date or why don't you have a boyfriend and I was like I don't want a boyfriend I absolutely love that about Sarah that she's like no you know I don't want a boyfriend it's actually much more exciting to go and dream about the goblin king falling in love with you I'm sure the labyrinth reached out to so many other um, teenagers in exactly the same position you know when they're perhaps not able to you know completely identify with their age group or they're they're quite introverted like I was um, and Sarah is the perfect heroine for us because um, she's she comes from us and she triumphs and it her journey is our journey didn't really feel like she was necessarily being in in love with the Goblin King so maybe I just completely uh, misread that but <laughs> for me I just liked that she wasn't boy crazy (laughs) so you know we at the start of the story there's no other than you know living in this fantasy world which could be the fantasy of of it that attracts her or this bizarre goblin king and so on and so forth you know it has multi-facets that she could be attracted to different elements but kind of the message for me was that here's a teenage girl and she's not going oh will this boy love me oh you know, it's that kind of thing that, you know, I think previously we've talked about YA books where, you know, this girl will just, it's all about, oh, does he like me? Will Does he think I'm pretty? It's all that kind of stuff. And, and Sarah's just the complete opposite of that. She doesn't care. She's not interested in dates. She just doesn't, you know, she wants to hang out with herself. And that, for me, was really cool. I think Jareth represents more you know her burgeoning sexuality rather than a you know a, a a plausible kind of love interest um for me i mean i i really liked his undercurrent of it's a kind of danger and allure at the same time it, he represents that kind of um untouchable alluring adult world that you know if you're 14 15 you're just crossing over into but you're also frightened to do so so i feel like you know the rest of the the dates that sarah's stepmother was suggesting she go on that's has a kind of sarah didn't want that kind of immaturity you know she's if she were to go on a date if she were to be interested she would want some some mysterious mature um you know, well, sexually experienced man. Um, but of course, she, only half of her wants that because the other half is still clinging to um, the safety of childhood. Well, I think that's a very interesting observation, Lucy, because if you look at the ballroom scene, which I always think is very telling, you've got all of these dancers who are dancing around and um, sort of being got quite extravagant, almost lewd outfits on, and they're all laughing and they're all tempting her. But you've actually then got Jareth who keeps eye contact with her, doesn't try to tempt her, doesn't try to push her out of her zone. He just comes up and whisks her away. And yes, she's part of it all, but she still feels safe with him. Uh, And I think that's obviously something that a lot of teenage girls would like. They'd like someone who is older, but who is experienced, who's gentle is the wrong word, because, you know, I wouldn't associate (laughs) that word with Jared, but who's going to be patient, who's going to be confident, who's going to shield you when necessary. And I think that's, I'm not necessarily sure, like Megan says, that she is already in love with him, but certainly she's very attracted to him. And I think that's part of the attraction. And I think he does represent 
a fantasy man that she would like. And I think at the end, when she rejects all of her childhood stuff, she also rejects to a certain extent him and what he represents. And like, you know, like Lucy says, and maybe going, well, okay, I, the Goblin King and my dream guys are probably going to be any good for me. I'll just go on to normal boys and have normal friends. That that sort of seems to be the message that you get at the end of it. Um, but I do have one question to pose to you about it. I mean, I read that um, the other choices for Jareth, because they wanted a pop star and a, a particular cultural icon, and the other ones were uh, Sting or Michael Jackson. And I thought if they'd cast either of those two, it would have been a very, very different film, particularly if they cast Creepy. Michael Jackson. Yeah. Um, I Sting could maybe have pulled it off. I mean, he had a similar vibe in Dune with, like, his mullet and weird <laughs> 80s-ness but <laughs> um yeah i mean nobody has quite the presence that bowie has and you know no one else could possibly have taught men how to wear meggings so well <laughs> um and the hair i love the hair what is going on with that hair i love the hair <laughs> i mean i suppose i don't know whether he would take this as an insult but David Barry, when made up, has a very elf in appearance, which you I don't think you get with Sting. Um, he would have a very kind of rugged appearance, and I don't think you'd quite get the smoothness that you would have done with um, uh, with David Barry. And again, Michael Jackson, I think it, he does have the elf in appearance, or, or did rather. Uh, but again, I think it would he would take it in a very cutesy way, whereas I think Barry's always got that that sort of slightly dangerous undercurrent. I think with Sting, yes. it would have been a bit more overt. Uh, and a bit more physical, but with David Barry, he just has this sort of, I, I don't really want to say predatory, I don't want to say menace, but it's so close to that and the way he plays it, and I think it's it's a way that men do tend to act around women sometimes, particularly older men to younger women. I mean, there was a, when I was looking this up, I found something on a, a website called Vigilant Citizen about how they said Labyrinth was probably specifically constructed with the purpose of brainwashing in mind, and it was just the most bizarre interpretation of the film that I've ever seen. And I don't know. I mean, it, it might be true, but I don't think it was specifically constructed with that in mind and the idea that, it, you know, it would be used in brainwashing people. And I can kind of see where it comes from. But um, it's, yeah, it's just there's so many different interpretations to it. And I think Barry's, um, Barry's performance lends itself to very well to taking on several different interpretations. And um, Sarah, uh, sorry, Jennifer Connelly's performance again is is so innocent it could be taken as you know representing many groups of people. So I think it has a, a very wide appeal that you maybe wouldn't have got if you'd had other people playing them. Yeah, and it's interesting because I find Jareth, you know, he is predatory. He's that kind of almost pedophilic figure, but he's also far more nuanced than that. And I think there's there's one line that he says right towards the end, which I find it, it's so laden with. Um, oh, I'm, I'm lo losing my words. Um, basically, it's the thought of David Barry in that fold. Isn't oh, it? I know. It's all I've been thinking about. Um, <laughs> so inconsistencies. So, but at the same time, you know, you can tell that he's also fighting with his own feelings. And so the line goes, fear me, love me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. Which just, it, it's like he also can't work out what he wants. 
you know, does he want her to fear him? Does he want her to love him? D- does he want her to be his slave or for for him to be a slave to her? It's it's just I, I found that really interesting and, you know, another way of looking at it. And um no, Charlotte, you, you sent around that link earlier. Was it yeah. Um where we uh on BuzzFeed where they were talking about how Oh yeah. Um I potentially yeah, he was in love with a Sarah and you know, he's reliving a kind of past trauma almost, which I think is a little bit far fetched and reading a just a little bit too much into the film, but it is, you know, interesting to look at his motivations there because it's it's not as simple as she summoned this kind of demon figure and he's going to do what he does because he's a demon as such. Um, he he has more going on than that. It's a, it's amazing, actually, that it's the kind of film that um, lends itself to wide uh, interpretation. I mean, I'm pretty narrow and I just like to kind of see it as, as they've presented it with this as a coming of age tale but um you know it is of course some of the the reinventions are quite far-fetched but i think it's wonderful that it it can be so versatile and such a shame that it was so underappreciated when it was first released that it seems that it's it's taken time for it to kind of seep into the you know cult consciousness um which is yeah, it's amazing that it is now, but but a shame that nobody kind of realised that it had this potential uh, at the time it was made. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about now, if you see a good movie on on the at the cinema, you go online and you blog about it, or you tweet about it, or you put it on Facebook and, and write a little review. And you had nothing like that in those days. I mean, I remember um, having Labyrinth on tape that we recorded at Christmas, I think it was, and. Um, yeah, and I didn't really know anything about it apart from just we had this tape called Labyrinth and my mother wouldn't let me watch it because she thought it was too scary for me. And uh, Little did know, she know that you'd become a horror writer. I know. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure that most of the reason that I'm a horror writer now is because my parents went, no, that's too scary for you. <laughs> um, when I was re-watching it before this, I found some a, a piece in the film that I feel like should be commented on, but I've not seen any articles or anyone else who's actually talking about it so i might be completely losing the plot here however there's uh the bit where hoggle feeds her the fruit and i think that it's a metaphor for date rape (laughs) and drugging a date in sort of in a bar in a club anywhere like that and i've um and watching it seemed actually like it was kind of teaching people to be careful who they trust and what they take from other people you know if they don't know what something is or you know to just be careful about it and I think that's a really really good thing to teach teenage girls and it's really interesting but I've not seen it mentioned anywhere else so perhaps I I'm reading far too much into it well it's interesting because like I say with the vigilant citizen article they basically said that, again, reflected the idea of drugs, like you were saying, Megan, but it was the drugs that they fed to um, slaves they wanted to brainwash to try and, you know, get them more paranoid to do whatever to ensure that the conditioning settled in. And I think you're quite right. I think it is a a good visual 
um, moral dilemma that they pose to us like oh here's someone you trust but you're going to take something from it and I mean it's the fact that the minute she bites into it she goes hoggle what have you done yeah and I think it's you're right it is a life lesson for all of us I see where you're coming with the the date rape thing I think I don't necessarily think because Jareth is the one who gives it to her via hoggle I yes. don't think there's anything insidious in that I think the whole point of that scene is that she it set up the beginning that Sarah lives her childhood in her imagination and that her imagination is very, very strong. And by giving her the peach and biting into it, she falls unconscious and allows her imagination to take over when she then sees this beautiful ball where she enters into the adult world where she finally sort of comes face to face in a very sexually charged atmosphere with Jareth. And I think the peach is the whole point that the only way he can get her to do that is if he gets her to surrender subconscious surrender completely and her subconscious takes over and she dreams it all and it's all fantastic and she's finally the fairy tale princess that she's always wanted to be and i think if it had happened earlier in the film then obviously she would have just fallen in love and possibly stayed there but it's key at that point because she's just learning to question things and particularly the fact that hoggle has just given her this peach and she's bitten into it and she's been betrayed suddenly she's transported somewhere where she feels really uncomfortable, doesn't trust anybody at all. And I think there's echoes of, of Hoggle's betrayal within that scene as she looks around and goes, hang on, I don't trust anyone here at all. And even the person I trusted betrayed me, so I don't feel comfortable here. And she picks up on all the hints there and goes to, to shatter the, the edge of the bubble. Uh, I would, that's, that is very interesting. And I like how you've kind of linked it to, um, you know, a wider um context and actually obviously date rape is is very serious um just to to lighten the mood a bit i mean how would you apply that to the bog of eternal stench i mean we've not talked about the bog and the bog is is one of the best elements of labyrinth does it have some secret sinister meaning i mean there's a lot of farting going on in that bog um mostly i just uh, love that i'm still an absolute child because i still have uncontrollable giggling fits at the fart noises <laughs> i'm just gonna admit to that but yeah i, well, I don't think i've i've thought about a, a possible metaphor for the bog of stink <laughs> other than i quite liked that she was fairly practical about it and then that ludo who by the way i absolutely love and i want him to be my best friend um <laughs> that it, it's kind of you know the monster creature that really has the issue with the smell rather than Sarah, who's the girl, you know, she's not being that prissy girlishness that you often see in, in, in moments like that. Yeah, it's a fair point, Megan. I think she kind of looks at it, and I must admit, whenever I watch it, I think, God, it's going to make her slippers stink. <laughs> but she kind of looks at it and, like you say, just kind of gets on with it and goes across. Um, and I, I don't know what the, the significance of that is, apart from it just being a bit of fun. And like you say, making you giggle at the fart noises. I mean, don't forget that although it went through several rewrites, the original um, concept was by Terry Jones, um, famous Monty Python uh, writer. And that was just, have you seen Eric the Viking, any of you? No. No. Lucy? No, oh, it, no, it's no. a brilliant, brilliant film. But, um, but it's kind of got that very lighthearted humour to it as well. And I, I think that must be his influence in there somewhere. Uh, I suppose the um, the main point of it is that it gives Ludo a chance to show off his um, his skills, his rocks. <laughs> show off his rocks. <laughs> I suppose that's one element to it. Um, so it serves a narrative purpose. 
Uh, yeah, I, I suppose so. I mean, the, doesn't she also get, um, she, they start to, to fall underneath her and she ends up hanging onto a branch and she has to be saved by to a certain extent. So I suppose it's about, as well as Ludo showing his skills, it's about her showing, it's about putting her in peril and finding that her friends will help and, her and out. And showing her trust. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, trusting in her friends. Yeah, I suppose if you've got a bog of eternal stench and someone calls up some rocks and you, if you've got to jump down onto them, you kind of be going, is this really safe? But you're right, she trusts Ludo and she, she jumps down onto them. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I suppose there are metaphors in there, but I think, to be honest, it's just about the farting and the smell. Yeah, I, I didn't think there was anything secret hidden in the bog of eternal stench. I just wanted to talk about it. <laughs> Prince of the land of stench! <laughs> But this just goes back to what we were saying, that there are so many elements to this film, and as well as the underlying sexuality, the potential date rape, there's also the Bog of Eternal Stench. It's, it can be enjoyed on so many levels. But I remember when I think about it as a kid, I was always fascinated by the fact that you have, when we first meet Hoggle, he's pissing. <laughs> and I know that sounds weird, but <laughs> yeah. I think it was the first film I'd seen where I saw someone taking a piss. <laughs> I love I love it. It's so casual, just the way that they do that. You just slip it in casually. And it's, I think that's what, there's a beauty of Labyrinth. So much of the, you know, it's meant to be this, the underground, this amazing kind of, it's all, all sorts of, uh, you know, magical, strange um, creatures that inhabit it. And yet it's all so ordinary as well. <laughs> you know, Hoggle taking a piss. <laughs> I think the wonderful thing about Hoggle, like you say, and um, him pissing up against the wall is that theoretically, and I don't know what you guys think about this, but theoretically he is the hero of the piece. I mean, obviously, um, the main protagonist and the main heroine is um, Sarah. But if anyone's going to be the, the main hero, it's got to be Hoggle. And see, like you say, our first sighting of him is as a grumpy troll peeing up against the wall and spraying fairies with bug, bug size. It's like, it's not... It's not your traditional hero at all, in the same way it's not your traditional fairy tale. Well, he and Sarah kind of um, uh, echo each other, don't they? Because Sarah, in the end, puts aside her childhood pastimes, uh, and Hoggle um, finally puts aside his beautiful plastic uh, or collection of jewellery. What does he call them? He he calls them his uh, shinies or pretties, or I can't remember. They're kind of the opposite of each other, though, because he, he covets things and she's got into this mess by trying to get rid of something that she w was an, a nuisance. So it's kind of, yes, it is complimentary. But and he, you know, because, of course, he, um, you know, she gives him the bracelet and he loves it and everything. And it's uh, and, and he actually struggles um, not, you know, not to betray her kind of in the. The, the early part of the film but in the end it's like well no actually my friendship with Sarah is more important than this bauble which I think is a nice um you know compliment so they, they both find something that's more deep that's deeper and more meaningful than the you know perhaps superficial um uh, elements that they've grown up with or become used to in Sarah's case her toys this is true and I think in the same way that you're saying that um Sarah and Hoggle both learning to give up kind of superficial things for something deeper and more meaningful. It's interesting what we were saying earlier about um, the Bog of Eternal Stench being about trust and having to step down onto these stones and sort of show your worth and step forward. And if you think about it, when Ludo, when she first finds Ludo, he doesn't trust anybody because they've all been poking him with big sticks and chasing him around a maze. So you're right in the same way that um, 
Hoggle and Sarah, both are linked by one thing that they have to give up. Both Sarah and Ludo are linked by their need to learn to trust other people. Um, so we now just need to find a, a correlation between Sarah and Didymus and the uh, the little doggy rides, and then we're we're home dry. The labyrinth. What I love about it is, as a story, is it's got quite a simple premise, and then it's it's really focused all the way through thematically. So you have the opening sort of couple scenes, and sort of the whole point is, oh, I can never remember that line, and it's it's the line of you have no power over me, and she can never remember it until it becomes the truth at the very end when she says it with sort of passion and meaning, you have no power over me. So, I mean thematically this really is a story of empowerment for a girl becoming a woman and understanding that she can say no she can take control of her life and move forward and i think that that makes it really truly powerful well i absolutely agree i mean one of the we're talking earlier about the sexuality and and things like that um and the do you remember where she falls down the well with all the hands in it Yes. That was another bit that really freaked me out. And they're all touching her in a way that she doesn't want. And I always thought that was kind of, it was almost at that point that she was almost truly lost when she was truly at risk was when people were touching this young girl, holding on to her. They had control of her whether she went up and down or they were trying to rip her head off. And then gradually by the end of it, like you say, she is taking control. But you have those moments where she's completely, both physically and mentally at the um at the behest of someone else and she has to get through that somehow and survive it um with the hands especially i think that's um it, it's the fact that they're forcing a decision on her without giving her the time to reflect because she says she doesn't know i mean they're actually saying is it up or down and you know hurry up you know we haven't got all day and then the other hand says oh it's a big decision for her um well it is a big decision and i think maybe that's it's just picking up on one of the the themes in the film which is are these very big decisions about growing up um but it's i think whether the the slight unease and the kind of peril comes from is the fact that she's um been you know, she doesn't make this decision standing on solid ground, safe, solid ground. I mean, she's really thrust into the thick of it there. And she's, you know, in a in a situation where, um, you know, she doesn't know what the results of her choice is, is going to be either way. Um, and of course, so when they when she chooses down, she she finds herself landing in an oubliette. So the, the real risk is the fact that they um they simply they they take away any kind of safe haven for her to make those decisions in and they actually force her to make them you know um right there and right then and i think that's the 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 kind of i think that picks up on a on a much deeper kind of theme in the film then she has other decisions to make later on and obviously the ultimate one is the one when jarrah says well you know all you have to do is stay here and fear me and love me and and it will all work out beautifully and I think she needs all those bad decisions previously to finally get to the point where she goes, actually, no, I've made bad decisions. I've learned from them. And now I'm going to make the right decision, which ultimately ends with uh, ends with it all being all right. But I do have a question for you about the very ending. Because obviously, um, and I should say it's a spoiler here, guys. If anybody is listening and hasn't watched this film, then you probably want to turn the podcast off now um, and go and watch it and then come back again. 
But uh, at, when she's sitting at the end and she's saying, oh, well, you know, I, I need you all at some point. I need you all in my life. And they're all like, well, why didn't you say so? And they all jump up and have a big party in her bedroom. I think the message there is clearly that it's OK to put away childish things, but you still have to retain some of your childhood and, and many of your experiences to enable you to be a sensible and complete adult. You mustn't rely on them all the time, but they should still be there. But my question to you guys is, what do you make of the fact that there's an owl, which is clearly Jareth, looking in at the window? Because my opinion is that the window is closed and they've shut him out and he's looking in and he has to fly away and do nothing. Whereas um, others kind of say, well, he's viewing them and he's watching them and going, aha, it's all going, you know, according to my plan. And he flies away in satisfaction. Or maybe that that was his aim all along. Was Although he was tempting her, he was trying to get her to choose the right one and he's now his job is complete and he's flying on to find somebody else to um tempt and try and encourage into adulthood but i wondered what you guys thought of the ending and, and what message you took away from it i liked that it wasn't as prescriptive as films like that often are when it comes to sort of that coming of age story where as you said it's about you know letting go of some childish things but we're all still children at heart you know and and to, to completely forget, you know, the, your imagination and that ability to escape into the fantastical uh, makes life a little bit drab. And I liked that kind of it, it allowed Sarah to both grow and hold on to something that she really loved and what was, you know, for her a really wonderful experience. When it comes to the owl, I'm not sure. I I felt like it was almost kind of a an envy thing so Jareth kind of wants to be there he wants her still and he wants to be with her but he he knows that he can't and that she's kind of won in a way oh that makes me feel really sad now (laughs) (laughs) what you mean that he's deliberately shut out and he feels bad about it rather than feeling defeated and cross you mean he feels defeated and sad I I thought he felt sad but Maybe that's just because I love Bowie <laughs> and I'm projecting. <laughs> well, he does say in his um, final song when he's walking around the, the Escher part of it, um, I move the stars for no one, which I always kind of took to mean, you know, I've moved the stars for you and I don't just do that for anyone. You know, you're special. And I, I that's always what wondered, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I always wondered if he really meant it or if he was just trying to be mean to her and go, you should be, you know, you should be grateful to me. Look at all the stuff I've done. Or whether he was like, look, you know, I really like you. Um, but again, I suppose it's the, the depth of, of Barry's performance and also yeah. Jennifer Connelly's own perfect performance that really gives you all these interpretations as to what they do finally mean to each other at the end. I think to, to um, you know, to go back to that, the, the party that she has at the end in her room, surrounded by, you know, all, all her friends that she's made, um, is, is saying that, um, you know, her greatest weakness is also her greatest strength, that... All of those childhood fancies and fairy tales, even though they are capable of leading her astray, they're also capable of um, making, well, they make Sarah who she is, and that's where she draws her strength from. Um, And it's simply learning to to let go and, and, but to retain the very best parts, you know, of your childhood, because that's the kind of the person that you are. I mean, I think the owl, I too thought it was pretty sad that he was looking in and not being kind of included. And I suppose that's um, picking up on something that Anne said in her article. She says that 
that Sarah is finally able to understand uh, that what Jareth's offering isn't power and freedom, but isolation and selfishness. And it is that that kind of lone snowy owl looking in at the window does kind of pick up on that. Um, you know, it, that's what Sarah would have had if she hadn't been strong enough to say that Jareth had no power over her. You know, all of this stuff we've talked about and all of the all of the times that I've, you know, argued that it's this wonderful coming of age story <laughs> i still come down to it that if it was me i'd have chosen the goblin king and been the goblin queen who wouldn't sarah you're so stupid i'm not sure whether i would or not i i almost i always kind of want to just you know be able to have a, a two-way ticket to the goblin kingdom and go back and visit i wouldn't want to stay there but it'd be quite nice to go and visit and kind of have him as a a summer thing <laughs> that wouldn't be good for me i'm not sure i could stay there permanently it all looks a bit madcap for uh, for permanent residency yeah i would stay but probably to hang out with ludo because yeah he he and i are just soulmates <laughs> <laughs> you'd marry ludo i would i would marry ludo and just have the best hugs for the rest of my life <laughs> thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed the latest episode of breaking the glass slipper check back with us in two weeks for a new episode